0: All right, so before I start reading this, I want to clarify, these are not my opinions. I'm not reading from the Bible or telling you to do something. All right. Life is short. Have an affair. Just want to make sure it's not my words. This is what I'm reading. Ashley Madison is the most famous name in infidelity and married dating, as seen on a whole bunch of different websites. This is the most recognized and reputable married dating company. Our married dating services for married individuals work. With our affair guarantee package, we guarantee you will find the most famous website for discrete encounters between married individuals. <laughs> As if that wasn't bad enough. I found one that's even worse. This is called Christianswingers.com. For Christian swingers, things are not easy. Often other religious people out of ignorance or envy telling you that your lifestyle and love practices are wrong. But the Bible teaches us, judge not, lest ye be judged. And there's that verse about the stone. But if you're keen on having an affair, we will match you up. A bunch of other stuff like that. Skip the swingers' club meetings where you can be seen and avoid bad reputation. Your personal life is something shared between you and our partner. Visiting this site might change your life for the better and increase the number of your potential dating partners. It goes on and on and on and on. We live in a culture, a culture in a country that celebrates adultery. We celebrate it as a lifestyle, and we'll talk about that a lot more today. Just to shock you with a few statistics before we, we jump into what the Bible has to say, uh, right now in our culture, 92% of the songs that are on the radio involve sexually explicit messages. 92%. Of the movies that come out every year, 80% of them have grasps. Sexual images in them. Out of all the TV shows on uh, on the television, three fourths of them contain sexually explicit content. Right now in America, the average age that a child will watch pornography for the first time is between three and six years old. In 2005, that number was 12. In just 10 years, it's dropped from three to six. I have been in youth ministry for a little over four years, and in that time, I have counseled uh, sixth grade girls who have had sex with their boyfriends. In that time, I have counseled uh, six-year-olds who are addicted to gay. We've created a culture where we love adultery. We love the idea of sex outside of the context of marriage, and we're going to we're about some of those things today, and before we begin, I want to say that I I started this sermon off with those things to shock you, Um, and and those statistics raise some kind of emotion within you. Um, One of the things I was reading as I was studying this is that most pastors will receive the most amount of hate email after they talk about sex, That, that people will write to them and say, you had no right sharing those things in church, that you should have stopped talking, you should have gone so far. Laid back, you should have skipped that. talked about something else instead. Um, and I know some of you might be feeling those things. And, and when we talk about sex and marriage and adultery, um, there's kind of a a weird dichotomy that happens. See, if I were to come here and stand about ISIS, if we were to talk about terrorism and the effect on the Christian church, every one of you would be behind me on that because. We want to enter into that conversation because with ISIS, you have evil that's destroying and devaluing human life. If I got up here last week and I preached on and I talked about abortion, all of you would be behind me on that because we have with children kind of an innocence, not theologically speaking, but with a perspective uh, that they are helpless to defend themselves. We want to jump into those waters to defend the people that can't help themselves. But when it comes to sex and adultery, we kind of back off from the conversation. We back off for one of two reasons, I think. One is that we find ourselves in, in a camp A or camp B. Camp A is people who think that sex is gross. That when we hear that word, we, we, something comes to mind that creates a negative image in our mind. Maybe you are part of a church history, church culture, church era where you did not talk about those things in church. That, that was something that happened between a husband and a wife in the context of a marriage bedroom. It was a conversation you had once in a lifetime with your child called the talk, and then you would move on from those things and not talk about them. Uh, there's some people who, who see sex as gross for, uh, for, for legitimate reasons. They, they were hurt uh, by someone with, in this area. Uh, they were abused by someone they, they loved respected. Someone they were married to walked out on them. They had an affair. Um, they were hurt in the act of sex. And so there's people who think that sex is gross, and then it can't be. You have people who think of sex as kind of a god, where you give yourself in service to it. And so we, we don't want to talk about it because it's kind of gross. We also uh, get away from the topic because many of us are incredibly guilty of this sin, and so we don't want to talk about it because we don't want to be contemned. We can talk about uh, ISIS because they're over there; they're different. I'm not part of them. I can judge them. I can condemn them. But with adultery, sex, marriage, we have brokenness and bitterness. We have addiction to pornography. We have uh, marriages that didn't last. We have uh, maybe you were cheated by your spouse, or maybe you were the one who cheated. Maybe you're having conversations with a coworker at work that are inappropriate. Maybe you stay up late on your phone texting people that aren't your wife. Uh, maybe you are with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you're sleeping together. And so we try to shy away from this conversation. Um, and I got the lucky privilege of speaking to you on that today. Um, the guy last week wished he could have talked about something other than murder. I wish I could talk about murder because that would be better. <laughs> um, so we are in Exodus chapter 20. If you want to turn there, uh, Exodus chapter 20, we're in verse today. Before we get to verse 14, let me just do a really quick recap of where we've been. For many of you, you may have been out of town during different sermons or having different people come up and talk. It's kind of confusing to follow the logic. So we begin the Ten Commandments by God telling us that I have given you these rules. This isn't Moses sitting down and deciding, okay, what would be good for people to understand? Uh, It's not, I'm sick of these people. I need to get them to behave, so here's a bunch of laws. The elders of Israel didn't get together and say, okay, can we take away freedom and make people miserable? Oh yeah, the Ten Commandments. And This is God's rule. God as a loving Father has given the commandments to his people. Verse 2 tells us the context of the Ten Commandments, that God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. The context, the timeline is very important. God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and then gave them the law to obey. God didn't give them the Ten Commandments and then after 400 years when they got right. He's like, okay, now I'll deliver you from slavery because you earned it. God delivers, God saves, then God expects to obey. That takes us to verse 3, the first command, which is uh, there's only one God. As Christians, we believe in one God. Not many gods as some religions, not millions of gods like Hindus, not everything is God like pantheists or Buddhists, not that there is no God like atheists. We believe that there is one God. And what we believe about this one God separates us from every other one God religion. We believe that this one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, separating us from Judaism and Islam. We believe there's only one God who exists in three persons. Commandment number two is that we worship that God alone, that we lift him up in a position of glory, and we offer sacrifices of our time, our energy, and our money as an act of worship to that one God. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that if you follow the first, you will never break the other eight. That if you settle the issue of glory, if you hold God in a position of glory, every other issue becomes settled and you will never break one of God's commands. But we know that we don't do that. We worship other gods. We worship creation rather than creator. That takes us to commandment number three, which is that you must uh, honor and not take the name of the Lord in vain. We learned that we must not raise his name up to meaninglessness, that God's name speaks to his character, his personality, who he is, how he reveals himself to us. And we as Christians are called by that name. And so the way we speak about God influences the way the culture out there views God. And so we honor God through his name. Commandment number four is that we honor the Sabbath and we keep it that on the Sabbath we enter into God's rest, that that we don't need to work for our salvation, that we can take time off and and we can acknowledge God has done everything for me. I'm saved in him. I don't need to continuously work for his approval. This, This fourth commandment also keeps us from working too much. You work six days and you take a day off. It also keeps us from working not enough. You have to work those six days to get the day off. Uh, We learned during the introduction that the Ten Commandments are 10 of 613 laws in the Old Testament. They're kind of a summary version. If the Israelites were to follow those 10 well, God wouldn't have had to give them more. And so God has to expound on the 10 over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Thankfully, God sent us Jesus and not more laws. God didn't add more laws to us as the church. He actually took a bunch away in giving us Jesus who fulfilled the law. And so Jesus summed the Ten Commandments up in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the first four relate to loving God. And when we love God, that uh, love manifests itself outward in love for people. The fifth commandment is that we honor our father and mother. The family is set up as this... um, this setting where the grace of God can be displayed to the world. The family is one of God's primary uh, functions in the gospel. That you would take the family or the parents would uh, present the gospel to their kids. Those kids would give it to their kids. Those kids would give it to their kids. And the church would continue in this way. One of the ways that we can respect and honor other people is by respecting and honoring our parents. So, so God puts this is the fifth, and it's very important. The sixth commandment is that we shall not murder. That we value human life because we're created in the image of God, and we have dignity, value, and worth, and so we then respect and value other people, not by uh, murdering them, but also by being angry with them. We forgive and love and show grace, just as God has showed grace to us. That brings us to commandment number 7 and verse 14, which says this, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in, and cover a whole bunch of stuff today. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to gather together today as your church. Uh, we want to pray as this conversation is very, very difficult for some people as uh, we bring past pain and emotion, things that we've tried to bury down deep, things we've tried to hide from other people, from our spouses, from our, our neighbors, our friends, from our small groups. Father, I pray that your spirit would uh, convict us of our sin, that your your word would cut us uh, it's a double-edged sword that has the power to, to, to break us, to cause us to bleed. And then I pray that your gospel would come in and heal us, that we would trust in you more fully through our time together today in Jesus name. Amen. All right so begin our conversation at the beginning of marriage, which is in Genesis chapter two. Um, so if you just flip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter two, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. We're going to be flipping around a lot today. We're going to cover four main passages, uh, so don't get too comfortable where we are because we're going to switch it up uh, really quickly after that. So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. This is the first time in God's creation that something is not good. Every day when God created, he paused and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. But finally, now something is not good. Not because God created something that was bad, but God had completed his creation. God's going to teach us a lesson in how he creates the first marriage. He creates the man, and he's going to allow the man to feel the loneliness of not having somebody with him. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to see them or brought them to the man to see what he called them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so God is going to bring every animal in creation to Adam. Adam is going to sit there and name them. His goal is going to be to name them, but also to find a helper suitable for him. And so we start A, aardvark, all the way back to Z, zebra. Think about how long this took Adam to create uh, names for each animal. Unless Adam was just a ridiculous genius, this probably took a lot of time, right? I don't know how people name a baby, but that's not something you're just like, hey, yeah, they got it, let me go name another. It's, it's work, it's a process, it's time consuming. And during this time, Adam is seeing that each animal has a pair. God created them, male and female, male and female, he created them. And so these animals are parading before Adam, and each one of them has a pair. And he's noticing that, and he's saying, you know what, the aardvark, not a good helper for me. The dog not a good helper. Zebra not a good helper. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven or to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. Why didn't God just create him a helper right away? I mean, God knows everything. God knows He's not going to choose the dog over a woman. Why not just create a woman and not go through this process? God is trying to teach us something about marriage in this study. Um, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. When God creates all the animals, he speaks them into existence. They became immediately with his word. But with Adam and with Eve, he takes time and creates. He gives himself into their creation. He's intimately involved in it. Um, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is the very first wedding ceremony uh, ever recorded in human history. You have Adam who's just waking up from his being knocked out by God. And the first sight he sees is God walking in the garden with this woman. Notice how God is bringing her to the man. In a typical wedding ceremony, the man will stand here in the front of the church, and her father will walk him down the aisle, or walk her down the aisle, and then give her to the man. This is what God is doing here: is a very loving father who's created the institution of marriage, he's giving his loved daughter to Adam. All right, Adam and Eve didn't think of the concept of marriage. They weren't together in the garden for a thousand years, and then they're like, "Oh, hey, we should get married. Wouldn't that be cool?" No, God institutes marriage. It's a a thing that happens immediately. God brings the woman to him. Then the man said, this at last, this at last, those animals, they're great. Those are beautiful creations, but this at last, this is what I'm looking for. This is a helper suitable for me. Notice what God didn't do. God didn't create a thousand different forms of woman and march those before Adam and say, okay, choose which one you want. You know what? You don't even have to choose right now. How about you date each one of them? How about you take them home with the night for you? And then you tell me which one you like best, and then we'll give you that one. No, God creates one woman, unites the man to that one woman, and Adam is ecstatic. At last, this is the helper for me. And flesh, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There was one thing left in the garden that was not named after he named all the animals and he named woman. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. In the beginning, in creation, we have this beautiful example of marriage, that God is intimately involved in every detail, that he allows Adam to feel the pain of being alone, of not being united with his wife, seeing every animal united with his pair, and then God creates the woman for him. And he enjoys and he loves her. And they're naked and there's no shame. There's nothing that comes between them and destroys that relationship. Genesis 3 comes about though. And sin enters into the human race. And we have now a disfiguring of marriage. Where now they were united. In Genesis chapter 3 they are separated. They're against each other. We're going to jump over now to Ephesians chapter 5. And look at verses 25 through 32. Uh, The book of Ephesians is about the glory of God. Paul is setting forth a a doctrine of the glory of God, that God receives all the glory because of the redemption of the church. God receives all the glory when he reconciles the church to himself. God receives all glory in the mystery of the church meeting together. God receives all the glory in the unity of all believers gathered together. God receives all the glory when believers imitate Christ. And God receives all the glory in Christ's final work on the cross, giving the church victory over. So in chapter 5, we have the the command to imitate Christ. And God receives all the glory in imitation of Christ. And Paul's going to bring in the concept of marriage for us. Verse 25 starts out by saying this, "...husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself." Uh, In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. These verses will start to sound familiar. Verse 31, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Verse 32, Paul brings up the concept of marriage from Genesis chapter 2 that one man and one woman will be united as one flesh and covenant together in the context of marriage. Verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound. This is a mystery of marriage is now something new revealed to us that paul is going to share uh, mystery is not something that we try to find you don't read the bible try to discover something new this is something god instituted from the beginning that is now revealed to the church because jesus christ has been given to the church he says this mystery is profound and i'm saying that it refers to christ and the church In the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, God takes all this time to develop marriage, to develop the context of marriage, to to help Adam see that he needs this marriage between his wife, that no other union will be good for him. That it's one man and one woman united together as one flesh. Then Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew and says uh, to the Pharisees, they ask him a question, if a man has seven wives, that he marries one and then she dies and he marries another and she dies seven times, Who is he going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus says, you've missed the point. There's no marriage in heaven. You are neither given in marriage nor are you married in heaven. This is something that, as a Bible college student, really troubled a lot of young guys. A lot of people would say, uh, what's one thing you want to do before Jesus comes back? And they would say, well, I want to get married because they misunderstood the context of marriage. But, But there's no marriage in heaven. And so what happened in that time period from beginning to the time of Jesus? Did God make a mistake? Did he suddenly realize, you know what, marriage is too much trouble. Not going to deal with it. There's no marriage in heaven. It's done. Get it out of here. Right? He's like, they're just committing too much adultery. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I made a mistake. Let's move on. In the new heaven, there's no marriage. No. He didn't make a mistake. God instituted the institution of marriage in the garden for a specific purpose. Purpose. He kind of taught that to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He described himself as the husband and Israel as the bride. As the husband, he entered into covenant with Israel and he was very faithful to Israel. Israel as the bride, though, was not faithful. And therefore, God calls her an adulteress because she uh, committed spiritual adultery against the Father. And so we get a glimpse of this in the Old Testament, but we see it fully realized in Jesus Christ. Paul says, it's a profound mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The emphasis of marriage is that it's an illustration, a picture of the gospel. That the church is united with Jesus Christ. We don't need marriage in heaven because we have the actual thing. We don't need certain things in heaven because Jesus becomes those things. There's no sun, there's no moon in heaven because there's no darkness, because we're in the light of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing with marriage. Jesus has replaced marriage as the illustration. And so we don't need the illustration because we have the actual thing. The church is united to Jesus Christ. Right now, we are united positionally, and the future will be united practically. And this plays itself out throughout the entirety of the the Gospels. If we were to know anything about a Jewish wedding ceremony, there are six parts to it. Uh, The first one is a betrothal where where the husband uh, who's interested in a lady will uh, make a covenant that he will marry her. It's a binding covenant. It's a legal covenant. It's entered into by two parties. And the covenant would say, I'm going to marry your daughter. She's going to be united to me. I'm going to become one flesh with her. We're going to leave father and mother and she's going to cleave to me and I'm going to support her and love her and care for her. During this time, uh, there would be a price that would be paid for the bride. Not because you need to pay money for women, but as a sign of respect to the father. Saying, you've done such a great job training up this woman that I want to pay you uh, for that, essentially. It's weird in our culture, but it was normal in this time. And then the bride would become set apart for a set time. She would be set apart. She would not be allowed to date. She would not be allowed to to marry or become engaged to anybody else. For that time period, they were legally married. In covenant, they were married. In position, they were married. But practically, they were not yet brought together. During that time of separation, uh, the bride or the, the groom would prepare a place for the bride. He would go somewhere, prepare a place for her to come live. During this time, the bride would make herself ready for that marriage. She would spend time uh, making herself beautiful, uh, working through plans with her family for the ceremony. Part three would be the taking of the bride. The the groom would come back in unexpected time with fanfare and trumpets and crowds, and he would take the bride to be himself. It was a party that was organized. Um, It was unexpected. She wouldn't know it was coming, but a lot of other people would. And then there'd be the wedding party. There'd be a giant feast where the man and the woman were united as one flesh, where now what they were in, pra- or in position, they are now in practice. Then there is the consummation where the bride and the groom become one as flesh during the marriage ceremony. That's what Jesus is doing for us right now. And his earthly mission became betrothed to the church. He set a covenant for the church, a new covenant, that you'll be my people and I will be your God. I will write my law on your hearts. I will give you a new spirit that will dwell inside of you. He uh, paid a price for his bride. He gave up his life for the church, paying for her sins. The bride then became set apart. The church set apart to become holy, uh, to become sinless for her uh, groom. There is a period of separation where the bride or the groom is going to prepare a place for the bride. Right now, Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for us. A lot of people will say, Why hasn't Jesus come back? I think it's a good thing that Jesus hasn't come back. If Jesus is preparing a place for the bride, and we know that Jesus, in the context of marriage, takes care and love for, in the act of creation, God didn't speak Adam and Eve into existence, He created with His hands. Right now, Jesus is creating a place for his church to reside in the new Jerusalem. That's going to take a long time. And I think there are so many people, part of that new Jerusalem, part of the bride of Christ, that he's not done yet. I think we should be rejoicing that Jesus hasn't come back. And as the bride, we need to go out and bring other people into the bride of Christ during that time. Because the time is going to come when Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be unexpected. The bride's not going to expect it. There's going to be loud fanfare and trumpets and celebration. And he's going to take the bride to be with himself. There's going to be a giant wedding party. Revelation calls this the marriage supper of the Lamb. where We'll be united with Jesus Christ. That he will be in practice what we are right now in position. There will be a consummation where we will be united with Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. There will be no end to that relationship. And so marriage is a beautiful thing biblically. It was ordained by God in Genesis chapter 2. It's an illustration of the gospel in Ephesians 5. It's something that we should proudly proclaim and hold on to. But something has happened since then. We have destroyed marriage in our culture. And and I know with the recent decision in the Supreme Court, a lot of people are saying uh, we redefined marriage. I don't think we redefined marriage in our country. I don't think we ever had a definition of marriage in our country. I don't think we ever sat down the young people of our generation and taught them, okay, marriage is a picture of the gospel. You need to be holy and blameless in your marriage. You need to set it apart for Christ. That that sex outside of the context of marriage, pornography, uh, doing things that you're not supposed to be doing, will destroy that image In the minds of you and in the church and of the person you're going to marry. And that when you get into the context of marriage, it represents Christ and the church. A relationship that cannot end. Christ will never walk out on the church. In glory, the church cannot walk out on Christ in sin. We should teach people to recognize that. In Ephesians 5, it says that that Jesus is... Giving himself up for his bride. That he is sanctifying her. He's cleansing her. He's washing her through the word. That she is going to be without spot or wrinkle. She's going to be holy and blameless. Right now he's nourishing and cherishing the bride. And eventually he's going to unite the bride to himself. In verse 27, we see the purpose of all of this. It says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blame. Right now, Jesus is preparing a place for his bride, and he's preparing his bride to be fitted for that place. And so he's teaching us holiness, teaching us how to be blameless. A good illustration of this would be in our own context of marriage. At a wedding ceremony, you have the groom who stands in the front of the sanctuary. He has spent all day uh, getting ready for this moment. His bride, he has not seen yet. She has spent all day making herself beautiful. The the groom has never seen the bride look this way before. He hasn't seen her. He's looking forward to her walking down the aisle. And he he waits. He waits patiently. He knows that that any minute the doors are going to open and she's going to walk forth. And then music starts and he sees all his loved ones enter into where he is. His family walks down the aisle. His friends walk down the aisle. Her family, her friends. To celebrate this union that's going to occur. And then usually the doors will close again. Already starts to cry. And the moment the doors open, he absolutely loses it. As he sees his bride in ultimate glory and perfection. A state he's never seen her in before. Holy and blameless in that moment. This is a picture of Christ in the church. Right now, Christ is waiting patiently as the church makes herself ready. He's waiting at the end of the metaphorical aisle, and eventually the church is going to walk through the door, and Christ is absolutely going to lose it. The culmination of all history, the perfect illustration of Genesis chapter 2, the fulfillment of Ephesians 5, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride is going to be united with Christ. That's the marriage we need to teach the next generation. That's what we need to pass on to the kids. Our culture is passing on a very different message though. our culture is passing on something completely different. We've taken everything that God has stated and we've absolutely turned itself, uh, turned it on itself to enjoy the sin of the moment. If you would turn to Matthew chapter five verse 27 through 30 Jesus here is speaking. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. He is going to correct some teaching that the Pharisees were holding on to. He's going to teach the people to become holy, to to follow uh, God more wholeheartedly. Last week we spent uh, this whole time talking about uh, Matthew 5 in light of murder. But right now we're in 27 through 30 where it talks about lust. Jesus starts out by saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Many of us, we hear this, And it's something we check off the list. I've never committed adultery. Most of us, um, I'm not even married, so I can't commit adultery. Check, right? It's off the list. I'm good to go. Let's move on. That's how most people view the Ten Commandments. But, Jesus comes in and says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is not concerned with the fruit of adultery. He's not so much concerned with the action of it. Because he knows underneath the surface, there's something that levels the playing field, puts us all in the same category. What does your eyes go to? What is your heart going after? He's looking for the seed of adultery that's going to grow up into the fruit of adultery. He says, he goes on, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus isn't saying literally go do this. He's saying your intensity, your passion for rooting out sexual sin should be like this. You will stop at nothing to get rid of it. Just some verses in the New Testament Acts says, you are to abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Ephesians 5, but among you must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Hebrews, see that no one is sexually immoral. As the church, as followers of Jesus, we need to attack this sin with the same ferocity as we would cutting off our own members, parts of our body. Because there's a punishment for this sin. In the Old Testament, there's a punishment for this sin as well. Leviticus 10 says this, that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. In the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery is death. In the New Testament, there's a new penalty for adultery. In the New Testament, it says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. That the punishment for adultery in the New Testament is divorce. So in the Old Testament, you have death, or physical death. In the New Testament, you have physical separation, what God united, you've now ripped apart. In the future, in the eternal kingdom, the punishment is destruction and damnation. You can go to hell for this sin. It's a spiritual death and a spiritual separation from that relationship in Ephesians chapter 5. So why does God care so much about adultery? One of my uh, friends said it this way, doesn't God have better things to do than care about who I sleep with and what I do with my girlfriend? Our culture doesn't understand why God takes adultery so seriously. And I don't think the church understands why God takes adultery so serious. If marriage is a picture of the gospel, adultery then is separation from marriage We have distanced ourselves from the gospel. We made the gospel invaluable to the world we live in. So how did we get to the point where we're at? Um, I just want to cover 150 years of American history in as uh, little amount of time as possible. Uh, In 1859, Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species. Up until this point, there was one worldview when it came to creation, and that was that created mankind in his image, giving them dignity, value, and worth, giving them purpose and function. And they lived in glory to that God. Now, for the first time in American history, you have two distinct, separate worldviews. Instead of a loving father, you're a series of occurrences and accidents. That in a moment, God created, and over here, it's over millions of years, things developed. Over here, you have innate dignity, value, and worth because you're created in the image of God. Over here, because you're an accident, you need to become valuable to society. You need to earn your way. Over here, we have a loving father who creates and cares. Over here, we have science who who does not care, does not love, that, that, that believes in something called survival of the fittest, that if you are weak, if you're old, if you're young, disabled, you deserve to die. Loving father, science. For the first time, we have this uh, mind shift in America over what people believe. And that comes to sexual things as well. In the animal kingdom, you're never going to see the lions in the savannah of Africa getting together in a, in a building and reading from Exodus 20, 14. All right, Fred, we know you committed adultery this week. You shouldn't have done that. right? The lions don't care. In the animal kingdom, it's whatever happens, happens. And our evolution comes along and says, we need to celebrate that. As nothing more than highly evolved animals, um, nothing then is religious or sacred. Your sexuality is no longer sacred. Uh, Your life is no longer sacred. That you have no value unless you give yourself value and purpose. And then fast forward to 1938, uh, a judge in America lifted the ban on birth control in America. Where God has spoken and said marriage is to be fruitful and to multiply, now in America you have this, well, Maybe you can just do it for fun. You don't really need to have children. You can kind of separate it from that. Up until this point, this is just preventative uh, birth control, it's not afterwards birth control. Um, In the 1950s, and this is going to sound silly to some of the young people here, we have the rise of the automobile in America. What does this have to do with the rise of sexuality? Um, for the first time in the history of the world, a man has the ability to take a woman out of the context of her home, out of the protection of her family, and take her away to do what he wants. Up until that point, you would, be mar- you would date inside the context of the family. You would date the family. You would get to know the family. The family would approve of you. You'd ask the dad for permission to date the daughter, to, da- to marry the daughter, that you were very much part of the family. In 1950, now you have the woman being taken away from her family. Think about every movie or TV show from this time period. What happens when a guy and a girl get alone in a car together? Adultery, right? Nothing good happens in the back of an automobile. That was something that happened in the 1950s. In 1953, the first issue of Playboy was published. Now when sex used to be something that was hidden, something that happened between a man and a wife in the confines of their home, now it's something that could be bought in a store, something that was very public on display. In 1960, you have evolution taking over as the main viewpoint, main worldview in America. And so Christianity is gone, evolution is now in. And so we have a new understanding of origin, design, and purpose. A new understanding of values and morals. What's right? What's wrong? And it's constantly changing, being reevaluated. Culture is speaking into those things, and it's influencing culture. In 1960, you also have the morning after pill created. So sex used to be something that you could try to prevent birth control. Now it's something that you could control afterwards with birth control. And so you can do whatever you want And there's never going to be a consequence for it. In 1970, no-fault divorce became legal in America. You no longer had to be committed to one person. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. We now do it legally, and we do it often. And there's no reason for it anymore. You don't need to, to, to say she was unfaithful. There doesn't have to be abuse. It could simply be, I'm bored. I want something new. My wife's kind of old. That girl's younger. I have more fun with her. I don't have fun with my wife. My wife always nags me. And so I'm going to get rid of her and find someone who doesn't. And then I'll get rid of her and find someone who doesn't. And so there's no longer commitment when it comes to marriage and sexuality. In 1973, abortion becomes legal in the United States of America. Since that point, 58 million children have been aborted in America. 58 million. That. Seems like a lot, and I'm going to make it even seem like a lot more. That's the equivalent of 5,800 atomic bombs all over America at once. 58 million people. That's one-sixth of the American population that we've destroyed. One guy put it this way. He said, in the U.S., abortion is the blood sacrifice we make on the altar to the goddess of unfettered sexual behavior. That instead of having one God and worshiping Him alone and not committing adultery, we've replaced God with sex. And we worship this God through the literal act of sacrifice. And that's the act of sacrificing children. In 1991, the first porn website is created and published online. If you want to do a study sometime, you can look at the the advancement of technology And one of the main reasons technology has advanced as fast as it has is because of the porn industry. We need more content. We need it faster. We need to download it faster. We need to watch it faster. In 2005, smartphones are successfully marketed to teenagers. This has absolutely revolutionized adultery in America. Statistically, 26% of teenagers ages 9 to 15 will have sent a, a naked picture to their boyfriend or girlfriend on one of these. Statistically, 99% of men watch pornography on these. Statistically, 67% of women watch pornography on one of these. The number one reason women watch pornography is because they want a relationship, and they think by watching it, they will get a man to fall in love with them. In 2014, Facebook recognized 51 distinct genders. 51 distinct genders that you can be, where God created them male and female. Male and female, he created them. Now we have 51 different versions of male and female. And so marriage is no longer between a male and a female. It can be between whatever you're feeling that day. Male, female, other, neither, both, um, whatever you might feel at that moment. And then in 2015, the most recent, the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. So now marriage is not even between one man and one woman. It's between one man and one man and one woman and one woman. What we have in the last 150 years is the complete explosion of marriage in American culture. The complete destruction, devastation, annihilation of it. I wish I could stand before us this morning and say there's one bright side to these statistics. The one bright side is the church. I wish I could say that. I wish I could stand before you and say in every survey ever conducted, the church stands apart in these categories. That when it comes to issues of pornography, the church is so far away from that that it's beautiful. I wish I could say when it comes to adultery and divorce, the church has distanced itself so much from those issues that the gospel is so beautiful because people struggling with these issues can see that. There is no difference. There's no difference. Every study by a Christian, by a non-Christian, by an American, by an other country citizen proves the same thing over and over and over again. There is no difference between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to issues regarding sexuality. There's no difference. Sometimes it's even worse. When it comes to pornography, the statistics in the church outweigh those outside of the church divorce within the church, adultery in the context of marriage is greater in the church than it is outside of the church. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I don't want to go into them all this morning. But the church needs to step up when it comes to these issues. The church needs to hold fast to this idea that marriage is an illustration of the gospel. And if we believe in the gospel, as the bride of Christ, we need to make ourselves pure and holy and blameless. As Christ is working. as the Spirit is convicting us. We need to become righteous and holy in practice. We need to save ourselves for our husband, Jesus Christ. We don't do those things. And so um, I want to end this morning by putting the gospel into sexuality, that there is hope for the church, that if the church would hold fast to the gospel, that would hold fast to the idea of making ourselves holy and blameless, that when culture looks at these statistics, They could see in the church something different, something beautiful that they'd want to be a part of. And so turn with me to Hosea chapter 3. Just a real quick background for the book of Hosea. Uh, The first two chapters, God tells uh, Hosea to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. Um, someone who literally worked and got paid in the field of adultery. God says, I'm going to show you an illustration of what the nation of Israel is like and what I am like as a loving father, and so I want you to go and marry this woman. They end up having three kids that that show God's uh, view of the nation of Israel, how they have abandoned and hurt him. In Hosea 2, God tells the nation of Israel to repent of their sins. That if they repent, God will show himself again as a faithful, loving husband. That they need to stop committing adultery against God. And and that as a loving father, he would forgive them and restore them. And then in Hosea chapter 3, we have one of the most amazing pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament that I've ever read. It starts out by saying this, And the Lord said to me, Go again, Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Go again, Hosea. God's saying, go again. That word again means Hosea's had to do this before. Go again and love a woman who's an adulteress. Go again and find your wife. Your wife has walked out on your marriage. She's committing adultery against you. Go again and find her. Where do you begin that search? Where does Hosea go to find his wife? How messy is that search? What are the feelings of Hosea as he goes to find his wife, who in that moment is cheating on him with another man? God gives us an insight into the relationship of Hosea and his wife, Gomer. He says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. God's saying, this is an illustration of the nation of Israel, even um, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. God says, even though the nation of Israel is committing spiritual adultery, they're worshiping another god, they're pursuing the stuff of the world, I still love them. I'm still going to pursue them. I'm still going to care for them. No matter how many times they walk away, I'm going to go again, and I'm going to find her. God says to Hosea, go again and find your wife. Verse 2, so I bought her. Hosea bought his wife back. What was already his legally, what was his positionally, he has to now buy back. There is a price for her adultery. And so he pays it. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and whatever that word is, of barley. Verse 3, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. Hosea tells his wife, now here's how this is going to work. You have walked out on me. You've committed adultery. As a loving uh, husband, I have come to find you. I have bought you back for a price. Even though you're the one who sinned, I bought you back. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to be obedient to me. Don't do that anymore. Don't pursue other men. Don't give yourselves to that. Verse 4, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. We are in those latter days. We have a King David who has come to pay the price for us story, the church is not Hosea. We are not the loving husband who goes out and finds the wife. We are the unloving wife who is unfaithful to the husband. Gone off again to sin against the one that she's supposed to love. And so the loving husband comes to pay the price for his bride. Not paying a monetary value, but paying with his life so that she can once again be his And the command then is that that you become obedient to him. You give yourself not to adultery, not to sinning, but to the love of your husband. Because the King David is coming and has now come in our time, Jesus Christ. And we have come to God in fear and to his goodness. The gospel is this, that that we are like ghosts. We have walked away from God, both spiritually committing adultery against him, but also physically in the act of adultery. The church needs to understand. They need to repent. They need to come back to their husband who has paid the price for them, who is working to make them pure and holy. And we give ourselves in obedience to him, making ourselves holy and blameless without spot or blemish. So that when we walk down the aisle, see Jesus Christ standing there, we're united to him for eternity. We will have caused more people to be there through our example, and through our witness. And so, where are you at this morning with this issue? What are what are you struggling with? What is your adultery? Some of you, you may be thinking, you know what, I, I don't know if I have this physical adultery. Many of you, you in the older generation, you, 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 you're you not the time where you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you don't have computers, so you can't do that. Maybe you don't get out so much, you can't uh, lust after another woman. And so you... Um, are doing better than some people at this. And so your question might be, how does this apply to me? What's your spiritual adultery? In what way are you keeping yourselves back? In what way are you worshiping another God outside of God? For the rest of us, though, I would say we are incredibly, incredibly guilty of physical adultery and spiritual adultery. Some of you need to go home and confess things to your wives today conversations you've had online, texts you've sent, uh, interactions you've had with your coworkers, things you've taken too far. Some of you are single and don't have a wife. You need to prepare yourself. If you get married, how you prepare yourself now will speak to your marriage. If you are single and watching pornography now, you will not be made faithful to your spouse in the future. Some of us may not get married in the future. We might be single for the rest of our existence. And singleness is not a bad thing. Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. And if you're a Christian, you've already entered into that marriage. Marriage is not the height of human existence. The gospel is. And so don't be sad that you're single. Be joyful. Be glorious that you are united with Christ. And you don't have someone else that you have to worry about, care for. You can pursue Christ with everything you have, as Paul talked about. But for all of us, it's going to be a time of repentance where we go before God the Father and we confess our sins of adultery. For some of you, you may be here and you're not a Christian and you're struggling with these issues of adultery and and you were convicted today. I I would tell you to take that conviction and turn it to the cross of Jesus Christ where he took your sins upon himself to forgive you of your sins, that he loves and cares for you as a loving Father, that he wants you to, to love him, to obey him. For those of us who are Christians, it involves re-examining our view of the gospel, holding it in a higher priority that everything around us is about glorifying God through the gospel. Our marriages need to be reevaluated in light of this. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Whatever your context, there's a way to apply the Seventh Commandment. The heart of the Seventh Commandment is that God hates adultery because it destroys the illustration of marriage. Let's be a church that loves and values the illustration of marriage and the gospel and that the people of Itasca, Elk Grove, wherever you live, would fall in love with the gospel because of what you show them in your issues of purity and adult, or, or marriage and, and, and holiness and stuff like that. Um, so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. Cool. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, uh, for your challenging word, uh, one that is hard to preach but even harder to listen to, Uh, Harder to hear, even harder to apply. Father, I pray that we would have those tough conversations, tough moments, that we would allow ourselves to bleed so that you can make us whole, that we would come to your gospel more fully in acknowledgement of how sinful we are, and that your gospel would shine brightly in this area through the the glory of our marriage and the illustration of that. Uh, We pray for all these things in your son's name.